This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. In 2014, scientists at the University of Southampton made what many regarded as an amazing discovery. Based on their examination of 2,000 people who had suffered cardiac arrest, the scientists found that nearly 40% of people described some kind of awareness during the time when they were clinically dead before their hearts were restarted. This left them considering the question, is this the first hint of hard evidence that proves life after death? Well, for Christians, the evidence for life after death didn't need to come from a study. The Bible clearly tells us that due to the fall of man, the wages of sin is death, that in Adam all die, and that there is a heaven and a hell and a coming judgment. But we also know the good news of a Savior who is Christ the Lord, whose work on the cross and whose resurrection defeated death for us. What is the evidence, though, for immortality, especially as we are confronted by atheists or by evolutionists who hold that the human being is only physical and has no soul and that there is no life after death? That's what we're going to be talking about today with Dr. Gary Habermas. He is Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University and author of the book he's written with Dr. J.P. Moreland. It is called Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality. And it's wonderful to have you here, Dr. Habermas. How are you today? Doing well, Janet. Thank you very much. It's a great topic, too. Uh, I love this topic, and I know you wrote the book quite a while ago, but I unearthed it because I said this is such a great topic. We've got to explore this with people because we do see these things in the news, don't we, about, wow, well, maybe there really is some life after death. Where do things stand now, would you say, on the topic since you wrote the book? Well, yeah, that was a long time ago. Actually, an early form of that book came out in 92 or 3, so it's... We added about 100 pages to the Beyond Death book, so it is a little bit updated. But ever since that time, 15 more years, uh, things have continued to go in the same direction. That study that you referred to was quite recent, and um, it was uh, the people involved were, were major researchers. So it, it was important. Uh, the only knock on the study from uh, from a critical viewpoint pretty much is that uh, man, you only had a few people who had evidential-type testimonies right. that they saw things that they could uh, later recount accurately. But, uh, you know, to me, uh, nobody should be having any of those experiences after death if if there's no afterlife. So I, I think it was a very significant study. Oh, I do too. And it's interesting. And I know one of the things you cover in the book, which I want to get into in a little bit, is this near-death experience phenomenon, which we've seen a lot more of since you wrote the book. But well, I'm curious to ask, just kind of as an opening thought, why you think there is so much skepticism over the issue of immortality? Clearly, there are a lot of religions out there and a lot of cults and a lot of uh, ideologies that have to do with where we go when we die. But why do you think we do see as much skepticism as we do over whether or not there is life after death? Well, I, I think there's more than one reason. One, of course, is the way you started your program. Since since Christians and monotheistic religions uh, in general, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are the by far the, 
the major expressions of religion throughout the world. Uh, I think a lot of people do make the move that if you're telling me there's an afterlife, then, okay, the next thing out of your mouth is going to be, you're right and I'm wrong, and I better straighten my life up, but I better change everything I'm about. And you're going to say something scary, too, and that's going to bother me. And, you know, so I think there's a number of those, uh, what after death, what about judgment, and don't tell me you're right, you know, questions of tolerance. I think that's one. Um, Maybe another reason is because even though the numbers are still small, there's a growing number of uh, folks who think of themselves as skeptics, secularists, atheists, agnostics. And uh, in the West, that's been growing significantly. I don't think it's uh, a, a predominant worldview by a long margin, but I think that bothers people. But but probably the, the uh, you think you're right, don't you? Some kind of uh, comeback like that mm-hmm. is... Uh, probably the main thing. I do, you know, teaching philosophy, and I was good friends with uh, Anthony Flew, the famous atheist, when he was alive, and he was one of the few people I knew who would say, yeah, people think I came to believe in God because I'm an old man, and I'm an atheist, and it's about time I get my life right. He said, but you know, I don't want there to be an afterlife. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he would say that regularly in print, and other other places. So some people just don't want to live any more after death, and uh, that's got to be in there, too. Wow. Yeah, that is quite significant. And he, he really touches on a good point, which is there is an expectation, I think, for a lot of us. Christopher Hitchens is a good example. Well, he's dying of cancer. He better accept Christ now. But, I mean, that, that shows how firmly cemented a lot of these darkened hearts are. They just will not accept the truth that Christ is God, and and don't even want to start with the premises that might get you there. That's right. If you start conceding a little bit, next thing you do, you're going to, you know, you're going to have the Romans road stuck in your face or something, (laughs) and ask, what are you doing with Jesus? And that's, you know, to some people, it's not just that it's untrue, it's just offensive. True, that's exactly right. So that's just the world we live in. Yeah, it sure is. Why would you say it's rational to believe in the concept of life after death? Well... It's rational for a number of reasons. You mentioned Scripture at the uh, top of the broadcast, and um, certainly for Christians who take Scripture to be true, um, and even Jews who take the Old Testament alone, and others, they have texts, and they're comforted with that, and and, it's good enough for them. I mean, I, I think of some of my favorite verses, like uh, Philippians 1, 21, and 23, uh, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I tell people, I've heard a lot of sermons on to live uh, for, uh, you know, as Christ is a major sermon topic, but not to die as gain. You don't hear a lot of that part B. No. But then two verses later, Paul says, I don't know what I'd rather do, stay here and, and have some major ministry or or uh, go to be with Christ. And he says uh, in the Greek, it's kind of a double emphatic, uh, a positive, sort of like it sometimes gets translated like this, I prefer to die and be with Christ, which is better, comma, far better. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's very comfortable, uh, comforting. You've got Scripture. Now, for those who want reasons, um, I would, of course, with all the research I've done, through my life, I'd say the resurrection is by far the best uh, evidence for the uh, Christian, and I would even say the resurrection should be considered as the best evidence if 
if the person's an unbeliever. But for me, near-death experiences are, uh, I don't want to say up and coming, we're way past that. I've been studying near-death experiences more than probably any topic except the resurrection, and I remember reading my first pieces of literature in 1971 and 1972, so it's it's been... It's been going on for a long time, and, and as scientists continually kind of hone the research parameters, and some are tighter, like the study you just mentioned in England, and some are not so tight in their testimonies. And I'm telling you what, when you interview a lot of people who've gone through these things, after a while, uh, I got to be careful with my words here. I don't want to be uh, blamed with being unthinking or something. <laughs> no but problem. Sometimes the testimony just kind of wear off on you, and you think, "Wow, this is why people two and three and five and a thousand years ago would say, uh, I know there's something there because when my grandmother died, she dot dot dot." Mm. And those testimonies are very powerful, even without the evidence. But we have the evidential ones where people uh, report things that they could not have seen in the position they were in, and that is subsequently verified. And sometimes they they tell the story right on the spot, and it's uh, verified uh, right away from the people who were present. But they were not just unconscious. They Their heart had arrested. There was no heartbeat. And we know now, this is relatively new information, but we know now that if you have a cardiac arrest, not arrhythmia or something, but if you have cardiac arrest, arrest means, you know, it's stopped. Right. And if the heart's not working, you are you are without brainwave measurable upper brainwave activity. Tell you what, hang on, Dr. Habermas. We're going to come back talking about beyond death, exploring the evidence for immortality. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and I'm joined today by Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, the rising costs of health insurance have really taken a toll on a lot of people, especially during this pandemic. Why do your members recommend Liberty HealthShare? Well, it really does change the way that you approach healthcare when it comes to healthcare sharing. Because each individual member of Liberty HealthShare is what we call a self-pay patient or a private pay patient, where we're each individually responsible and able to guide and manage and direct our own health care free from the constraints of government controls or third-party insurance systems. It really changes the whole methodology by which you approach health care to where you start seeing yourself as the owner of your health rather than just somebody who's entitled to a program because you paid some money. And we see lower costs, greater accessibility, and frankly, better outcomes. Tell us about the personal interaction that your members experience with Liberty HealthShare. Well, it's important in Liberty HealthShare to know that we're not just bodies in need of getting our bodies fixed. (laughs) We're also spiritual beings that need to be in relationship and connection with other people. So in our system, online system that we call ShareBox, we have what we call a prayer box, where our members come together to pray for each other in times of need, to help support one another, and let everyone know that you're not alone. 
during these times that are unprecedented and can be very lonely, you've got an entire nationwide community right behind you, praying for you, here for you as an individual and a member. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, or their phone number is 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Is there life after death? That is one of the big questions in life. And for a lot of skeptics, a lot of agnostics, a lot of atheists, the answer is, of course not. Nothing happens to us. We're merely physical. We don't have a soul. You Christians are crazy. But we are exploring the evidence for immortality today. Beyond Death is the name of the book. Dr. Gary Habermas is joining us. So you were talking about these near-death experiences, Dr. Habermas, and how we see these people who were in full cardiac arrest then coming right. back and saying, I saw this, I experienced this. I Even these testimonies about floating around the room and seeing the doctor. I mean, what are we to make of this biblically, just the testimonies that are so strange to us? Right. Yeah, and and they may be strange to us because we don't uh, hear them so much. But, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of books available. Um, You know, they'll be called subjective by people and things, but if if they're just interested in, if folks are just interested in, in testimonies, there are a number of books, I've got a few on my shelf, of books that were published in the 1900s and, you know, collected near-death experiences. So they weren't so strange. I've got probably a half dozen stories in my own family of this person and that person. And probably there were more of them when, well, well, you've got a pro and con. You've got chances for more indies today because we can extend lives and we can measure things better. But Many who die today, I, I remember reading in one book years ago that uh, very few people die today who aren't drugged in some sense. Mm. Um, they had pain relief or they're sleeping or they're kind of out of it, and um, they're not as aware. Whereas 100 years ago, people might be younger and more aware and not the same kind of drugs. And so th- the stories were common. And many have pointed out that they think there are near-death experiences reported even in Scripture. Hmm. At least, if not near-death experiences, near-death phenomena, things just like it. And so I think it was much more common in cultures not to even, I think it probably wouldn't even be questioned in many of the ancient cultures. Wow. Well, of course, when you look at some of the skeptics, their answer to this would be, oh, you had some, you know, wacky things happening in your brain, you were experiencing hallucination. What is your response to that when they question the concept of life after death merely when you hear these sorts of testimonies? Well, I I made a reference to studying this material since uh, 71, 72, which... uh, you know, is is about 45 years' worth of information. And in the old days, and if you look at their testimonies from way before that, we largely were uh, dependent on nice stories, some of which obviously changed this guy's or this lady's life. And so we say, hmm, maybe there's something to this. But it just kind of goes in the back of our mind that we don't have evidence. Even some old cases, by the way, um, there are some highly evidential cases from the quote-unquote old days. But at present, I think the best way to look at this, if you're looking for evidence, is let's uh, picture a case. Now, you might have to go through a lot of them to get an ideal one. 
but let's say a case where a person arrests, has a cardiac arrest, in a room without windows or where the, you know, the windows are certainly covered and they're nowhere near the window and they can't see outside. And, and they have the situation and we know, you know, you've called 911 and you're waiting and you know that this person has been in that situation for X amount of time. They're not up and standing at the window. But when they come to, when they're resuscitated, they report something that happened down the street, uh, on top of the building, uh, in another room, if it's in a hospital, on another floor, um, could be their relatives are there. People in near-death experience testimony often are drawn to their family members wherever they are. Mm. So they might say, I looked in on X, Y, and Z while they sat in the waiting room uh, 100 feet away or on a different floor. Wow. And yeah. They can reproduce conversations. They can tell what color clothes people had on, even though they hadn't seen them for three, four, five, six days. Um, and these things can be verified or falsified. Some of them get very specific. And uh, as I was saying earlier, we know from the latest evidence that if if someone has a cardiac arrest, their heart is not working as far as we know. Their heart's not working. Within 10 to 30 seconds, their upper brain activity, that part of your brain from which you have your most meaningful experiences, is also not working in terms of what our machines can tell us. Mm -hmm. So some skeptic can always say, oh, yeah, but you can have all kinds of brain activity with the brain not working. <laughs> well, how do they know that? They, <laughs> you know, it's not verifiable. But even so, it's hard to imagine that the most meaningful event you've had ever had in your life and for many people many nd years that's what this is but for for them to say right the most meaningful event the person ever had in their life happened while they had no measurable upper brain activity but of course all kinds of things go on in the brain but it's not measurable upper brain activity so why do you expect the most meaningful thing to happen to you with evidence go on when your brain is at best at its lowest possible ebb wow. and very subjective. Yeah. But you're reporting an objective event. So, you know, I've done a lot of dialogues with people um, and talk shows and live debates, and and it this is very hard evidence for naturalists to explain away. Now, what does that tell us, though, when we, you know, accepting that these testimonies are accurate so far as the person knows, what does it say about what happens to you after you die? I mean, there are some who, for example, will point out so-and-so saw light and felt warmth and all the rest, but so-and-so wasn't a Christian. So right. it wasn't as if that person was about to enter heaven. And what does that say about the intermediate state once you die before, you know, we know we're awaiting the general resurrection when we get our bodies sure. back. What should we understand about, you know, the, the the biblical view of the intermediate state and taking those testimonies into account? Well, those are great questions. In fact, I tell people, I think the follow-up worldview questions, like those you just raised, are more difficult than the evidence questions, because the evidence questions, we've kind of gotten to the place where the evidence just seems kind of solid right now. Now, um, now, when I say evidence, we're talking about minutes, and in a few, very few cases, hours, 
uh, after a person is declared dead. We're not talking about what happens a week later or two weeks later right. or a millennia later. Right. So it's really hard to build up, you know, what Christians would call some kind of eschatology. Um, you know, what happened 15 minutes after we died kind of things. Well, sure. the date I'm reporting might be seven minutes after, and that's it. Uh, one more thing is that I tell I tell people all the time, I, I wrote an article years ago, um, a Christian journal asked me to, to do an article on evidence. I've done a lot of articles on Indies, but this group, I, I was getting so many questions on the worldview questions that you're asking. I said to them, hey, instead of doing evidence, why don't we do some of the worldview concerns, like uh, how come some people don't seem to have uh, judgment, how come they don't see hell, uh, how come they say God is accepting of them, and so on and so on. So they said, yeah, that sounds good. So I wrote this all up. And, and, and here's here's the point um, about the evidential case. I, I, it's going to be pretty hard to prove that NDEs conflict with Scripture for a couple reasons. One I just gave. It's only a very short time after death. Secondly, the person is near death. We call them NDEs not post-death experiences. So if their body is not finally dead, then we can't expect that they have gone to wherever it is they're going to go when they die, because that's not over yet. So if they're hovering around their body and their body hasn't totally expired, um, then you can't expect them to have seen... I mean, it's like a visitor. If you you took your family and you went to... um, the 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 city border of New York City, and you came home and said, "There's no Empire State Building in that city." <laughs> I went there. I didn't see it. Yeah. And somebody would say, uh, "Where were you standing?" And you told them, and you know, a local resident would say, "You know, you're you're pretty silly. You you can't see the Empire State Building from where you're standing." And the reason you didn't see it was because you didn't go there. Right. And I think that's a real simple response to these NDEs. If you don't go where the things in question are, how can you say there are no such things? Uh, but here's the, big, the most important response. When you ask me about evidence, and if I'm going to dialogue about this, I've, probably, I've already done more talking in this interview than I almost always do about these NDEs accounts that everybody has in their family or that uh, or so many do, or that go back 100 years or 200 years. or five, You know, Plato reports a near-death experience mm. hundreds of years before Jesus. So I, you, I don't talk about those as a rule because they're not evidential. If you ask me about what evidential cases there are, which we started to get to uh, a little bit later, the evidential cases are almost without exception, they are this-worldly cases. You know, the famous cases concern two or three tennis shoes on the roof of the hospital that's described later, what your mother was saying in the waiting room uh, two floors away, uh, what somebody was dressed with, some really uh, uh, amazing minor characteristics that could be confirmed, but they're this-worldly. Now, if the person says, well, then, I don't know, five minutes later, ten minutes later, I was whisked away to heaven and... I, I'm not a believer, but but I saw God. I'm sure it was God. Well, did he tell you that? No, I'm just sure it was God. And he was smiling and welcomed me into heaven. Okay, 
lot of issues here. A lot of issues. We're going to dive right back into it when we come back from this break. Dr. Gary Habermas joining us to talk about exploring the evidence for immortality. We'll come back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mufford today talking about the evidence for immortality. It is a question that all of us must face, even if we are not Christians. And yet, as Christians, we can be confident that there is life after death, a heaven and a hell. We're talking it over with Dr. Gary Habermas, author of Beyond Death. So, Dr. Habermas, you made a great point. We were talking a little bit about these near-death experiences that people have and reporting back. And you made a wonderful point, which is the testimonies often are... I saw my dad in the waiting room. I saw the doctor wearing such and such. But they're not necessarily reports of, I saw heaven. I saw the heavenly city. I saw Jesus. You, you do sometimes hear that. But generally speaking, that's why these NDEs really have to be taken for what they are. Right. And, and oftentimes, the deeper the experience goes, you know, the, the quote-unquote more dead somebody is, the longer it goes on, is when they have these extended experiences. But... But so there are plenty of these heavenly ones. By the way, for the record, there are more hell cases, hell NDEs, than are usually acknowledged. Oh, wow. In fact, I read in a, uh, I mean, many times in popular presentations, you'll read about one person who went to hell, one here and one there. But in a recent study, I saw a figure of, it was like 18 or 19 percent of uh, wow. cases involve. Um, some hellish or really negative, judgmental kind of situation. But yeah, the point I was making, I mean, to me it's irrelevant whether people say they went to heaven or not, or even hell. Um, Because I was just saying there before the break that there are uh, a lot of issues here. When a person says, for example, yeah, I was standing before Jesus and he was very accepting, you say, well, what did Jesus look like? Well, he didn't really look like anything. It was like a light. Mm. And I was absorbed into this. I was taken in and loved and surrounded by this light. I knew there was a human. I knew there was a person there. I knew there was a presence. But I didn't really see a person per se. I was just enveloped with this incredible love, a personal love. And you say, okay, you, you didn't see anybody. Oh, did the person identify themselves? No, no. And so what Christians call Jesus, um, Jews might call, frequently call, an angel, and so on. So right away you start thinking, wow, there's some different interpretations here, you know. These people don't walk around heaven with, with identification, you know, bracelets on. Right. And, <laughs> all right, then they say they had a wonderful experience. Well, that's great. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> happy for you, but... But that, that's not a whole lot more valuable evidentially than you telling me you had a dream last night where you went to heaven. Now, I'd, I'd probe a little bit because I wondered if that was a little bit, if it was more the dream or if you're having physical issues or if something could happen during the night. But, 
But for the most part, there's no backup at that point. Right. So again, you're right. I, I, I can tell you what the guy down the hallway said. I can tell you about the tennis shoe on the roof. In some rare cases, I can tell you about being attracted to my family members one mile away from the hospital. I mean, there, there are cases like that, but they're all this worldly. Yeah. So the way I often say it, and the way we say it in the book is, to be near-death experiences are not worldview-determining experiences, except in this sense. They're, all, they're only worldviewish in the sense that they argue that naturalism is wrong. There's more to the world than the natural portion alone. There is a supernatural, and there very much seems to be an afterlife. Now, I imagine you'd be standing in line with a lot of people, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, certain kinds of Buddhists, um, many, you know, folk religion, they'd all be saying, amen, that's right, afterlife, we all believe in this. And all the religions would have that belief against non-religious worldview. But the reason that's important, besides the more comforting, personal, yes, there is something beyond, uh, the other reason, the philosophical reason this is important, is because naturalism, the view this is the natural world is all there is, and would include views like atheism and agnosticism and skepticism and so on, of any, anything supernatural, they just, I mean, next to God's existence, I'd say God's existence and the afterlife are maybe the two most important doctrines that they do not want to be true. Mm. And this is one of the important pillars. Now, if you have some reasons where you think God exists, you have a one-two punch with God and an afterlife, naturalism's hurting. And uh, I think that's where Indies are valuable, that plus the comforting, counseling kind of aspect, but not to be talking about the furniture, so to speak, of heaven and hell, right. what I saw. Because I can't, frankly, I can't tell the warm fuzzies part of the experience from your own personal beliefs in many cases, and how do I know it wasn't subjective? I mean, sure. If you're a Christian and you give me a really Christian account, I can hope it's true, but how do I know it's true? And if the person says, oh, because the Bible says so, well, now they're punting to a different kind of response. The, the NDE does not tell me about the furniture of heaven. And someone says, well, uh, you know, you're, you're pretty cocky about this, but I'll bet you you're very happy when people go to hell, aren't you? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to say, look, no, first of all, I'm not happy. And secondly, the knife cuts both ways. I've said this many, many times. The evidence for a hell experience is no weightier than the evidence for experience where someone says, yeah, God was all ready to let me in, but he said it wasn't my time yet, and he sent me back. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's your subjective experience. Maybe so, maybe no, but, but uh, there's no evidence. So I, neither can I use these accounts to talk about the nature of hell. No, you can't. And that's an excellent point. We can't use subjective experience to build our theology upon. It's, right. You know, we have to go to the Bible. So this goes to the other point that you talk about, one of the other points that you make in the book, which is the resurrection of Jesus is such important empirical evidence for the afterlife, for the concept of life after death. Now, people will say, well, Jesus came back from the dead after three days of being dead, but here he was on earth. So how can you Christians say that's evidence of life after death? Jesus just came back and then you claim he went up into heaven and ascended into heaven. But how do you use the resurrection of Jesus to make the case for immortality and the existence of heaven and hell? 
Right. As you were implying there uh, in your comment, I, I think the evidence for the resurrection is better than near-death experiences, especially in the worldview aspects, the what does this mean, okay, now what kind of questions. And the reason is twofold, at least. I tell my apologetic students, I teach only at the uh, Ph.D. level, and I, and I tell my my uh, sharpest students, who I hope are going to be uh, professors uh, or at least pastors someday, and I say, you know, this is important data for two reasons. When the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, let's, let's unpack this. What was an appearance of the risen Jesus? And I said, you know, here's the way I'd say it for second graders. I would say, when, when Jesus' disciples saw him, first of all, imagine how happy they were to see their best friend. But when they saw him, if I were to, to kind of define this in really popular terms, they saw walking, talking, eternal life. Hmm. When they saw Jesus, they saw a visitor from beyond this world. They saw somebody who had gone where no man had gone before. Hmm. They saw somebody who had died and been there and come back. So first of all, this isn't somebody who had a experience after 15 minutes. This isn't ex- uh, 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 more likely two or three minutes. Um, this isn't a person who is just, you know, not sure what they're talking about. There's some data here. I mean, look, that's what look at my hands and my feet mean. Yes. Uh, he'd just been crucified. All right. So first of all, they see this person and they can talk to him. It'd be way better than talking to Lazarus if you weren't Lazarus's friends, because Lazarus did die, you know, and uh, here's Jesus, the only the first fruits, as the New Testament says, in a resurrection body. Second reason, besides the direct, here he is, um, walking, talking, eternal life, the, the second point is, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed it in a bunch of different ways. If he were a false prophet, you know, you got Deuteronomy 18, anybody who predicts the future and it doesn't come to pass, and they say they're a prophet. I hate to do this. Hang on, Dr. Habermas, I'm so sorry. Lousy timing, but we got to go to a break. Dr. Gary Habermas, Beyond Death, will return on Janet Meffer today. Don't go away. Emmy was in a bad relationship when she found out she was pregnant. Her boyfriend told her to get an abortion, which she seriously considered. I knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Emmy went to a pre-born center in need of guidance. They honestly were able to put every fear at ease and let me know that it was going to be okay. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. Preborn clinics introduce moms in crisis to their babies through ultrasound while providing hope, love, and the gospel of Jesus Christ in action. Would you join Preborn in helping more moms choose life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies from abortion. And this month, through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-2229 or there's a preborn banner to click at janetmefford.com Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care 
That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today, talking with Dr. Gary Habermas about his book, Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality. And we were talking about some of the reasons that the resurrection of Jesus Christ points to life after death. Some wonderful things. First of all, you were talking about when the disciples saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. They were dealing with walking, talking, eternal life, as you said. And the second reason you were getting into before we had to go to the break, what was the second reason? Well, the first reason in the in the most concise language is simply they saw eternal life. They saw heaven enter their world when he appeared. Mm. Okay, but the the other, I, that's the direct reason. The second one is an indirect, around-the-block reason, and it goes like this. Jesus made very special claims about himself. In fact, we assume that all the major founders of all the major world religions said they were God in some form. Oh yeah, what Jesus did is just typical of everybody. And actually, no other major founder of our major world religion claimed to be God, right. at least in any kind of books that are any, rel- any time relatively close to their life. I mean, our earliest sources for Buddhism, as a, one Buddhist scholar tells us himself, is 600 to 900 years after Buddha made the comments. Mm-hmm. So it's not very reliable. So in, re- in closer, more reliable material, Jesus said he was the Son of God in some sense. Now, he's Jewish, and in a Jewish milieu, Deuteronomy 18, person who predicts the future, and they're wrong about it, is a false prophet. Right. They were to be stoned. They are definitely not of God. Deuteronomy 13, five chapters earlier, a person who performs miracles. And even if he performs miracles, if he says, now, worship other gods, I don't care if he does miracles, uh, uh, Moses says, uh don't follow them because the teachings don't follow. You need the evidence plus the correct message. All right, so Jesus says, I'm the Son of God. What you do with me determines where you spend eternity. His most important teaching was the kingdom of God and how to get there, the keys, the, you know, paths to get you into the kingdom, what you have to do with Christ. Now, I can't think of a founder of a major world religion who would be more in violation of being a you know false prophet and and obscuring and and way worse than obscuring God's commands, but but you know slaughtering them, more a candidate for a heretic, there would be somebody who makes these two central claims that mm-hmm. they are in some sense divine, and secondly, what you do with them determines where you spend eternity. Our our subject today, so if Jesus is a mere man and he's a heretic, i.e., he's wrong, he can't raise himself from the dead. He's got to be worked upon. His body's got to be fixed, raised, something, by somebody else. He said it would be his father. 
You can object. You can say, I don't believe in this, Father. I'm sorry. Then how do you explain the resurrection? We have to get a coherent explanation. And the most sense is that Jesus saying his father would raise him. And by the way, that's another fact. He predicted it ahead of time. The fact that he predicted the resurrection ahead of time, and even critical scholars allow this, by the way. And the fact that he predicted it means he's in control of the situation. If you know something ahead of time, that means there's a plan. Yes. That means something's going on that, you have, that you're privy to. So if he's the son of God, if he has the keys to the kingdom, if he knows he's going to rise, then it happens. That's the around-the-block argument. The first one says, here I am, handle me. A spirit is not flesh and bones. You see me have. I love that verse from even the King James translation of Luke 24. To see Jesus, to see heaven. The second one is... The around the block, uh, the resurrection indicated that Jesus' teachings were true. His central teaching had to do with who he is and what the keys to the kingdom consist of. And if you ignore those keys, uh, it's to your detriment. Yeah. If the hotel clerk says, here's the key to your room, and you say, no, thank you, I can get in without it, um, you know, that's to your detriment. Mm. The person probably knows what they're talking about, and you don't. You've never been in this town before, perhaps. Well, Jesus has been there. He's been in the town before. So I think both those reasons that they, they confronted heaven, secondly, how else can we explain the confirmation of heaven, tells me far more than an NDE of, uh, let's be generous and say five minutes. Yeah. Uh, that says that the, something of the human uh, spirit uh, lives beyond the death of the body, for a few minutes anyway. But Jesus tells us what's coming down in the future, just like he told us about his own resurrection before it happened. So I think that kind of worldview argument that ties the resurrection of Jesus' teachings is the by far the best roadmap of the afterlife. That is great. Those are both great. And I had not thought about it like that before, the indirect reason, but you're absolutely right. And I'm curious to ask you, you had mentioned Anthony Flew before, and we were talking a little bit, touching a little bit on the new atheists. When you talk about Jesus, when you specifically bring it down to the person of Jesus Christ, how do they usually react to that? Do they try to change the subject and go back to naturalistic perspective and keep it in that realm? Or are they willing, generally speaking, in your dealings with them to talk about Jesus and deal with probably the most strong evidence of all for the uh, afterlife? Well, uh, it, it, of course, depends on the uh, person that you're talking to. Um, I have, uh, years ago, I was challenged by a fellow and I was at a conference I was lecturing at, and he was a minister. He'd been in Christian work, and so he's got some background. And he asked me how could apologetics be more relevant to people's lives, and, and not just build Christians up, but reach out to, to unbelievers. And he, he mentioned a few friends of mine. He said, you and Bill Craig and, and J.P. Moreland, how many times do you lead people to Christ? during these debates. And, you know, we have standard answers to that kind of stuff. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, I mean, we're in town and out of town, and we've got to turn these people over to the local Christian group that works with them, and we're not around to see them pick up the pieces. And he said, and he just made this off-the-cuff comment. He said, that's because you guys have one-night stands. Ugh. And I thought, I thought, wow, that's a wild comment. But, you know, when you think about it, it is because we have one-night stands. We're just there very briefly. And then I got thinking about how can I make this more uh, prominent uh, in people's lives. And ever since that time, I've really sought out unbelievers 
I've written a couple of journal articles on Jesus' use of friendship with unbelievers, kind of walk a mile in their shoes. Right. And that's the kind of person I talk to the most. Now, if it's the angry, bitter, something went down in my life, somebody died, something nasty happened, they're harder to talk to, but I, but man, God breaks through in those cases, too. I've seen it with my own eyes. But the, the cases where you have people who are interested, if you can present data, they're listening uh, this kind of evidence goes over very, very well. And I often use near-death experiences. It's not, the evidence is not as good for the Christian as heaven. I mean, as the resurrection vis-a-vis heaven, but the NDEs are icebreakers. Yes. Because when people say, no, 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 I don't care what your evidence is. There's no evidence for an afterlife. I say, well, wait a minute, let's just talk, stop here for a second. All Americans aren't stupid. In fact, you can look at surveys, like Americans with, with graduate degrees, things like that. It was one of them. Um, when these people say they believe in an afterlife and they ask you why, and NDEs are very important to them, they're not stupid for believing in this. So how can you, instead of just saying no, 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 how do you deal with the evidence? So it, for the special case for the person who says, I'm not into resurrections, I don't believe in <laughs> resurrections, I say, well, do you believe in NDEs? Do, do you think these could have evidence after that? Well, yeah, but not the judgmental kind. Okay, well, let, let's talk about that. Could there be an afterlife? Well, yeah, yeah, maybe, if you've got something to tell me. But but it's after the icebreaker. Now the person's got to deal with the evidence for one Jesus Christ, who frankly, in this to- world of toleration, presents data for his claims that are not present in any other religion. In fact, to me, it's crazy when people from other religions even say in their publications that we don't have the kind of data that Christians have. Uh-huh. I think that's amazing. That is amazing. And you know, one of the one of the quotes that came to my mind from your Christianity was the one C.S. Lewis had about creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. And incites right. the baby feels hungry while well, there's such a thing as food. The duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. And I wonder if that's not also, as you mentioned in the book, something that you can point people to and say the very fact that you want something more, you want something more than just this life. You, you know that yearning. It points to yeah. a God who created you, and there is a satisfaction for that yearning. Yeah, Peter Kreef, the, the, the well-known uh, philosopher, has a fantastic book called Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. And uh, it's great on that kind of pull, kind of inspired the, uh, by the idea of C.S. Lewis's uh, concept of joy. Yes. And that I think that's why people come back. If you've got something to offer that they've not studied... Maybe they're not ready to hear about the red-letter verses in the Bible just yet, but if you want to give them hope for the future, you know, they're often a lot more willing to start with that. And Uh, I say start because that can't be the place we end. Absolutely. Well, you've got to get a hold of the book. It's called Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality. Dr. Gary Habermas joining us. So wonderful to talk to you again, Dr. Habermas. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for great questions. I enjoyed the time. Oh, I love talking to you. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate you. And thanks for listening today to Janet Mefford Today. As always, our website is JanetMefford.com. We'll see you there.